Well, what a perfect song to lead us into our time in God's Word. I want to invite you back to 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to be picking up where we left off in our scripture reading, and I want to read for you verses 20 to 28. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 28. Follow along with me as I read. Paul says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, first fruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming... And then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. God, we come to you this morning and we ask you to be gracious to us now and illuminate us by your Spirit. Give us insight into these verses that we would understand what they mean and how they apply to our lives and that your word would accomplish its work in our hearts today, Lord, that we would leave differently than when we came. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the most challenging duties of a pastor is officiating at funeral services. And I personally feel an enormous amount of pressure to say and do just the right thing as I seek to minister to those who are grieving the loss of their loved one. It's a very sensitive time, and um, I also know that most of those in attendance don't want to be there any more than I do, Um, and I can tell that they're also struggling with what to say and what to do. I mean, let's just be honest. Funerals are typically sad, they're difficult, and they're just plain awkward. When I preside over a funeral that has an open casket, which is um, often... Um, it's customary for the pastor to stand at the head of, of the deceased while people pass by to express their final regards. And so I get a front row seat to watch how people deal with death. And it's very interesting to watch. Some people will quickly pass by the casket, making sure not to make any eye contact with that dead body. Um, others will stop and linger and, and whisper a few words to the deceased. Some uh, might even bend over and kiss their loved one or place something in their hand to uh, put a memento on their chest. And then there's always a, a, a few who, a, as soon as the service is over, they, they refuse to go to the front, anywhere near the cask, and they make a beeline to the back door. But it's still not over because it only gets more uncomfortable because there's usually a processional to the cemetery where the pallbearers will carry the casket from the hearse to the gravesite and place it on rollers over this eight-foot hole in the ground. And that's where, where it really gets hard because the finality of death begins to sink in at that point. 
I mean, just cemeteries are just creepy, right? I mean, we, we, we drive by cemeteries. It's not like, hey, there's a cemetery. Let's go check it out. The only time we're in a cemetery, right, is when we have to be in a cemetery. And, and we would all like to get out of there as soon as possible. So my question is, why is death so sad? Why is it so difficult? Why is it just downright, downright awkward? What is it about death that we've devised so many ways to beautify it? I mean, just imagine or just think about how we've built these these beautiful, uh, elegant funeral homes, and we play soft, soothing music, and we purchase stylish caskets, and we dress up and put makeup on the dead body to make it look as nice as possible. We, we, we surround the coffin with, with gorgeous flower sprays, and we ride in fancy black limousines with shiny paint and uh, shiny hubcaps, and we cover up that gaping hole in the ground with astroturf. All these things are designed to, to mask the ugliness of death and make it easier for us to deal with. And I would submit to you this morning that, that the reason death is so uncomfortable to deal with is because it's just unnatural. The reason why it's uncomfortable is because it's unnatural. We were never supposed to have to deal with it. And so we do the best we can. And while we know that death was part of God's plan, it's clearly the work of his enemy, Satan, who deceived the first humans into sinning, and ever since mankind has been under the curse of death. And in order to right this wrong, God sent his son to earth to live and to die and to rise again from the dead. And during his time here on earth, God's son, Jesus Christ, often attended funerals. And the Bible says that he was deeply moved, he was troubled. In fact, he went to the funeral of his friend Lazarus and it says he wept. Jesus wept at the graveside of Lazarus. He shed real tears of grief, not just because he lost a friend, but because of the tragic effects of sin on the human race. He saw all the pain and all the sorrow and all the suffering that had come into the world as a result of sin and death, and he was outraged by it. And so Jesus approached the tomb of Lazarus in John chapter 11, knowing the enemy had done that. And in the words of John Calvin, as a, as a champion who prepares for conflict against Satan himself, he called him to come forth. And by raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus was just giving us a, a preview of his own resurrection when his holy wrath and, and righteous rage would be directed uh, towards sin and towards death and ultimately toward the one behind it all who he had come to earth to destroy, to conquer, to defeat, and that was Satan. The writer of Hebrews says it well in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. He says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. In other words, Jesus took on flesh. He became a man. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. That's us. And the majority of mankind lives in fear of death. 
And when Jesus rose from the grave, he, he did so as a triumphant king who had vanquished the power of sin and death and hell. That's why I love that, that line in the song that Kelly just sang. A, a battle in the grave, the war on death was waged, the power of hell forever broken. Now death, where is your sting? Our resurrected king has rendered you defeated. And that's what I want to talk about this morning with you is, is the defeat of death. And that's what's going on in this passage here in, in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul was instructing the, the members of the church in Corinth how Jesus' resurrection guarantees the resurrection of all those who believe in him as their Lord and Savior. Before the Corinthian believers had come to Christ... They were just like the rest of the Greek culture in those days. They had been indoctrinated in Plato's philosophy of the afterlife. In other words, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. Since the body was evil, the body was earthly, and, and, and they wanted to get rid of their flesh, be done with their flesh. And so salvation to them was, was the soul and the spirit being freed up from the body to float around, float around somewhere for the rest of eternity. And so Paul confronted this erroneous doctrine or assumption here by arguing that rather than floating around as spirits, we will spend eternity in resurrected bodies. And these bodies will be perfect, free from evil, and therefore not susceptible to deterioration or disease and death, which are all, by the way, related to sin. And because you're a sinner, because I'm a sinner, that's why you're deteriorating right now. You are susceptible to disease, and one day, unless the Lord returns, you're going to die. And so am I. And so Paul's main proof here of our bodily resurrection was Christ's bodily resurrection. That Christ didn't just come back in spirit. He came back in spirit and body. And Paul knew he had some leverage here because none of the Corinthian believers would ever deny the resurrection of Christ. But apparently they didn't, they didn't realize that the same thing that happened to Jesus was going to happen to them someday. And so Paul's point in this chapter is just to show that our resurrection is a, is a natural consequence of Christ's resurrection. In fact, you would look at 1 Corinthians 15 on the surface and you think, well, this is all about Christ's resurrection. And it's really not about Christ's resurrection. It's about our resurrection. And Paul talks more about our resurrection than Christ's resurrection, and he shows how Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. And so what that means is if you deny our resurrection, then you deny Christ's resurrection, which is ultimately a denial of the gospel itself. And that's why Paul began this chapter by just reiterating the gospel. In verses 1 through 11, he reminded them of the gospel message that he had preached to them and that they had received, which included the well-attested historical fact of Christ's resurrection. And then in verses 12 through 19, he, Paul poses a, a hypothetical scenario of the awful consequences of denying the resurrection of the dead. Okay, fine. You want to say that there's no resurrection of the dead? Well, let's see what that would mean then. And ultimately, it means that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. Are you ready to say that? 
Because if you say that, then there's also a domino effect of other things that would, take, would, would be true. Well, thankfully, that's not true. And Paul wants to make clear of that. And so in verse 20, he bursts forth with this triumphant affirmation that Christ has been raised from the dead. And based on that fact, we can be confident that we will be raised from the dead as well. So he returned from the realm of possibility, what if, back to reality, what is. And in the verses to follow here, verses 20 to 28, Paul proceeded to explain the amazing consequences and, or, or certainties of Christ's resurrection, namely that it guarantees our resurrection, the resurrection of everyone who believes in him. Now you may be thinking this morning, well, that doesn't sound very relevant. I need some help right now. Um, this is, seems to be talking about then in the future. How about, how about right now? Do you realize what I'm going through right now in my life? Well, I appreciate your sentiment, and that's why I liked what this one commentator had to say about the practical relevance of what Paul was teaching here in these verses. He said this, Paul's sudden burst of triumph must have served as a tonic for the bewildered and beleaguered Corinthians. They were beset round and about with the everyday problems of family life, church life, and social life. The glorious future awaiting them had been largely crowded out and covered up by these problems. In addition to struggling with the ordinary cares of life, the Corinthians had to live out their faith in a culture that was permeated with skepticism and doubt about the Christian message. That climate of opinion must have made it very hard for them to retain a firm grip on their eternal realities lying ahead. And then he asks this, he says, don't we find ourselves in much the same situation? That, that seems to describe our experience as 21st century believers. Don't we find ourselves so absorbed with coping with everyday life that the future life seems faint and distant? Don't we also find ourselves intimidated by the cloud of doubt that hangs heavy over this generation? Paul's sudden burst of euphoria ministers to all of us who are carried along by the everyday cares of life and who are caught in the clutches of secularism and skepticism. It shows why Jesus' resurrection must be considered the guarantee of all those who belong to him. So as we come this morning... Um, dealing with everyday life and living in a culture that is becoming more and more anti-Christ, um, it's easy to forget this stuff. It's, it's easy to get bogged down and to lose sight of our hope and our confidence as believers. And so this morning, I want you to see in this text how Paul provided six guarantees based on Christ's resurrection that his followers will also be resurrected from the dead. Hopefully you grabbed an outline in the back when you came in, and I've just really described these six guarantees with six words. Anticipation, representation, succession, abolition, subjugation, and consummation. They all sound like fancy $100 words, right? But as we go through this text, hopefully they'll become very simple and clear. Let's look at the first guarantee that you and I, if we believe in Jesus Christ, will be resurrected from the dead someday. Number one is the anticipation. The anticipation. 
Verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And again, Paul uh, declared here with confident assertion that Jesus had, had been resurrected from the dead. And guess what? That changes everything. Verses 12 through 19 is not true. Amen? And so rather than to be the most pitied, Christians are to be the most envied. Why? Because since the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead, it guarantees that those who die in Christ will be raised from the dead as well. He says that he's the first fruit to those who are asleep, and we know that that's a euphemism for, for believers who have died. 1 Corinthians 11, earlier in this letter, Paul mentioned how some uh, believers in the church had had, uh, had gotten sick and some slept. In other words, they died because of their disobedience in taking communion. But I think this term sleep was used just to emphasize that death is only a, a temporary state. It's like taking a nap. It's not going to last forever. And we know that the moment a believer dies, their soul immediately goes into the presence of the Lord. We learned that Sunday or Friday night at, at our Good Friday service when the thief on the cross uh, repented and placed his faith in Christ, Jesus said, in 2,000 years, you'll be with me in paradise. Is that what he said? No, he said, today, today you will be with me in paradise. And Paul said that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we know that, that the fact that Christ rose in bodily form from the, the, the grave gives us the hope and confident expectation that our bodies will rise from the grave someday as well, but they'll have to wait a while. Our bodies die, our souls go to heaven, our bodies die, die. they're buried in the ground or they're scattered. If you go the cremation route and must wait to be resurrected from the grave. But there's this anticipation based on what Paul says here, because Christ's resurrection wasn't just one person's or one man's triumph over death. It was simply the first of many more to come. Notice he says he was the first fruits of those who were asleep. That, that term there is a, an agricultural term that referred to the first portion of the crop that God commanded the Israelites to, to bring to the temple and offer up to him uh, as a way of consecrating the rest of the harvest. And so it was given in anticipation of the rest of the harvest First fruits implied that there will be more fruits or later fruits. I think it's interesting that Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the exact same day the first fruits were traditionally offered in the temple. It was the day following Sabbath or the Sabbath after Passover, Sunday morning. And so his resurrection literally served as an example and a, a guarantee of a, of a whole crop of resurrections to follow. That, that Christ's resurrection was not just one isolated event in history, it, it represented the beginning of something much bigger. It was a foretaste of a, of a great harvest of all those who die in Christ. What happened to Jesus will happen to everyone who believes in him. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 11. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That's our anticipation. That's our expectation. That's our hope. Number two is the representation. 
the representation. Notice what Paul says in verses 21 and 22. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And so here Paul reasoned that if a man was responsible for originating death, then a man should also be responsible for overcoming death and and offering eternal life. Death was started by one man's disobedience and death will be ended by another man's obedience. Paul expanded this this grand truth in Romans chapter 5. You may want to turn back there with me for a second. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 Paul writes, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then notice verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ, so then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men, for as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. So what Paul is saying here is that that, that just as death came into the world through Adam, so life came into the world through the second Adam, Jesus. The second Adam came to clean up the mess that the first Adam had made of the world. And as one commentator writes here, Adam and Christ are presented as federal heads. It's a very important theological concept, the federal headship of Adam, the federal headship of Christ. And this means that they acted on our behalf all who are related to them are affected by their actions. We, we understand that concept in America because we have a federal government. And they represent us and what they do affects us, right? They're kind of our head. They're, they kind of rule us and lead us. And so Adam's headship resulted in death for all those he represented. And Christ's headship resulted in life for those he represents. In other words, as as the representative of the human race, Adam's sin applied to the entire human race, including the consequence of death. And while Adam represented every single human being, uh, without exception, Christ only represents those who believe in him. Everyone who is born, that's all of us, identifies with Adam and is subject to death, whereas those who are born again, that's not all of us, But those who are born again identify with Christ and are subject to eternal life. Now we need to be careful here with verse 22. It says, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Paul was not teaching universalism, that that everyone's going to be saved in the end. We know that's not what he was teaching here because in so many other places in his letters, he, he denied that fact. Only believers in Jesus Christ will be raised to dwell eternally with him in heaven, you need to be in Christ. And if you're in Christ, then you are represented by Him. Well, thirdly, notice the succession here. The succession, verse 23, he says, But each in his order. So he says, So also in Christ all will be made alive. In other words, all who are in Christ 
will be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. So Paul indicated here that the bodies of those who are, are in Christ will not be resurrected immediately. They'll have to wait for uh, their turn, or literally his return, And we don't know exactly when Christ will come back, but we do know the basic order of events that will take place when he does. There's a specific sequence of events laid out in Scripture that will occur in the unfolding drama of God's plan of redemption. And not all uh, godly men and and good Bible students agree on the sequence of events, the, 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 the end times prophecy and how it all will take place. But the most important thing is clear, and that's this, that Jesus is coming back to get his own. We can all agree on that, that Jesus is coming back. We know that because he promised he would in John chapter 14, which we're going to get to in, in uh, just a few weeks in our study of, of the Gospel of John. In John 14, he said to his disciples, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so we have the hope of heaven here. And so we know that he's going to return. And we know that we will be resurrected. And we also know that there will not just be one resurrection, there will be two resurrections. There will be one resurrection for, un- uh, for believers and an- another resurrection for unbelievers. Two separate resurrections. And we know that from John chapter 5. John chapter 5 verse 25 Jesus mentions these two resurrections. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father is life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So we've got two resurrections, the resurrection of believers and the resurrection of unbelievers. Let's look first of all at the first resurrection, the resurrection for believers. Now that has a couple phases um, just like the coming of Christ has a couple of phases, right? Christ came the first time, he's coming the second time, and even in his second coming, Scripture indicates that there will be certain phases of his coming. It seems best to understand that he's going to come first when he returns in the air uh, to take uh, those who are alive and remain in Christ uh, to heaven. Um, and then seven years later, after the, at the end of the tribulation, he's going to actually return to earth. His feet are actually going to touch down uh, when he comes to conquer uh, the Antichrist and, and, and Satan. And so you've got this first resurrection of believers. The first phase is the rapture of the church. In fact, Paul mentions it here in this chapter. Notice later on in verse uh, 51. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. In other words, we won't all die, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. 
Paul, by the way, lived in anticipation that the rapture would happen in his lifetime. I mean, he's talking about, like, this is what's going to happen. We're going to hear a trumpet, and none of us are going to die. We're just going to be changed. He was talking about the rapture. He went into more detail uh, when he wrote his letter to the Thessalonians because they had some mixed-up views of the end times as well. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul was addressing the issue that some people felt like um, their loved ones who had already died, um, because they died before Jesus came back, they missed the rapture, they missed the resurrection, and they're gonna, they were going to be lost forever. And Paul said, no, 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 listen, this is how it's going to be. He says in verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Yeah, I know it's sad when, when your loved ones die, but, and it's okay to grieve, but man, you can grieve with hope. That that's not the end. You're going to see them again. Why? For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, which he did, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. He'll bring them in their soul state. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. In other words, God will resurrect uh, the, the dead saints' bodies and reunite their body with their soul. Then verse 17, it says, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And so that's the first, or that's, I should say, the next step, the next resurrection, or the first phase of the resurrection of Believers, but then there's also the resurrection of tribulation saints that will take place at the end of the tribulation. In other words, all those uh, who come to Christ during the tribulation and, and die and are martyred for their faith in Christ, and they'll be resurrected um, when Christ returns um, at the Battle of Armageddon and to set up his millennial kingdom. Notice uh, in, in Revelation chapter 20, after Christ returns and destroys uh, the Antichrist and, and the beast and, and the false prophet, it says, And I saw an angel, this is chapter 20, verse 1, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Notice Verse 4, so Christ returns, he, he, he destroys the Antichrist, he destroys the false prophet, he takes uh, the one who's behind all this, Satan, and he puts him in the abyss for a thousand years. And then verse 4 says, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so here we have the resurrection of those who died during that seven-year tribulation. I also believe that at some point here in the white spaces, um, God will resurrect Old Testament saints. We don't have any other reference where they're going to be resurrected, uh, where their bodies are going to be resurrected and joined with their souls. We believe that their souls are in heaven, right? Right? 
but uh, their bodies will be joined with them and glorified uh, probably somewhere around this same point. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, talks about how Old Testament saints had the hope of eternal life, the hope of resurrection, bodily resurrection. And so this is the first resurrection here, including the rapture and the resurrection of the tribulation and potentially Old Testament saints. Now, let's look at the second resurrection, and and we know the second resurrection includes all unbelievers, all unbelievers, and that will happen at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. Notice, continuing on in Revelation 20, verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. In other words, this, okay, all the people that are resurrected first, those are all the believers. There's no believers left in the grave at this point. They've all been reunited with their souls. But now we need to resurrect the unbelievers. Notice verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death is no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. In other words, be happy if you're part of the first resurrection because that means you're no longer susceptible to death. Notice what happens at the end of the thousand years. Verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Verse 9, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So finally, uh, Satan will have one last chance to overthrow God, to overthrow Christ and he'll be defeated, he'll be vanquished to hell forever. And after that, we have the second resurrection, which is, we, don't, we know is the great white throne judgment. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the the second death, the lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. By the way, that is everyone at the great white throne judgment. Nobody who comes, who is resurrected at the great white throne judgment will find their name written in the book of life because it's all unbelievers. And so Christ is the firstborn of the dead, or firstborn from the dead, as he's described in Scripture. And those who have died believing in him are the next ones who will be raised from the dead. But not until, uh, and then what will happen after that is what we can call the abolition. Notice verse 24. He says, then comes the end. By the way, you say, where did all that stuff come from? Well, I was just filling the white space between verses 23 and 24. A lot happens in there in, 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 during the end times, right? Paul's just kind of skipping over the surface here. And he says, then comes the end. After the resurrection, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. So after the rapture of the church, after the resurrection of the tribulation saints, 
after the white, great white throne judgment, Christ will set up his earthly kingdom. Well, not after the great white throne judgment, but after the tribulation of the sins. Christ will set up his earthly kingdom in Israel where he'll reign supreme and he'll establish himself as the absolute monarch of the earth. He'll reign with, with supreme authority over all things for a thousand years. And at the end of those thousand years, again, as I mentioned, Satan will be released to, to lead a short-lived rebellion and be cast into hell forever along with every unbeliever who ever lived and that will usher in the new heaven and the new earth in which the universe will be restored to its original sinless condition. How's that sound? Notice back in Revelation, hopefully you kept your finger there, Revelation chapter 21. Let's just pick up where we left off reading. Then... I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be among them. And what is this place going to be like? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. Why? Because he already threw death where? Told death to go to hell is what he said. Get out of here. No longer will you affect anyone ever again. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Why? Because there's no death and so there's no need for any of that. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new in other words, he's restored everything now, and he said, right for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Who is speaking there? Who is the Alpha and Omega? Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm done. I'm done. It's over. I've, I've finished the purpose for why God sent me, why the Father sent me to earth. I, I set up my kingdom to, to destroy all of God's enemies and restore the earth to the way it was before Satan and sin and death messed it all up. And then back in 1 Corinthians 15, notice he says in verse 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is what? Death. People will still be dying. I think people will still be dying in that millennial reign. But after death is finally vanquished and thrown into the lake of fire, the, the war that Christ has been waging against Satan and sin and death ever since he came to earth the first time will finally be over. And check this out, death will go out of existence. It'll go out of existence. There'll be no such thing as death. Forever and ever and ever and ever. And so, as one commentator says, this terrible enemy that has brought upon the human race or was brought upon the human race by sin is going to be the very last enemy that's destroyed before the Lord Jesus hands his kingdom over to the Father. And, and Paul, in anticipation of this, he, he, at the end of this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, he taunts death. I love this, verse 54, he says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He's taunting death. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory over death and sin 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's the abolition, which leads us to the subjugation. What does Christ do here? Notice verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Verse 27, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. What's up with the feet thing? Well, in ancient times, kings and emperors always would sit enthroned above their subjects. And and so whenever they would bow down to them, they would literally be under or lower than their feet. Also, it was customary that, that when a king or a general would, 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 would defeat another king or general, he would, he would literally put his, put his foot on the king's or general's neck to symbolize that you are now subject to me. I own you. And so we know that the Lord said to Christ, the Father said to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 110.1, I mean, just think that. Here's, here's your enemies, and you're gonna just prop your feet up on them. Nothing more humiliating, right, for your enemies and for, to use them as a footstool. Paul quotes Psalm 8.6 in verse 27, for he's put all things in subjection under his feet. This was a reference to, to how God has made us as, as men, uh, a little lower than himself and put everything, uh, every other created thing under our feet. And, and in like fashion, there's coming a day when, when God will put all things, all of his enemies under Christ's feet. And then notice, Paul is just hammering home his point here that, that all things would be subjugated to Christ by using the word subject or subjected six times in two verses. Verse 27, for he's put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who has subjected all things to him. You think he's trying to make a point? And, and by the way, Paul, I don't know why he felt this, the need to qualify all this subjection talk, but he does. He says, hey, just so you know, that didn't mean God subjected himself to Christ. But we need to understand that when when Jesus died, when Jesus rose again, he encountered the forces of evil and he won the decisive victory over sin, death, and Satan. There's a couple of passages in in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 3, that talk about during those those hours when Jesus was in the grave, that he actually went and preached a, a sermon of victory over, over Satan and, and, and the demons and came back victorious over hell and death and the grave. And yet, even though these enemies know that they've been defeated, that they're beat, that, they're, that it's only a matter of time before they're going to be done away with forever. They continue to resist his rule and seek to undermine God's plan of redemption. You say, well, what is God's plan of redemption? Well, listen to what one commentator said. He said he's, he's bringing, God is bringing all things back to the point at which human history began. Before Adam sinned, and I would add in Satan fell, which was the ultimately the first sin, wasn't it? Satan committed the first sin in heaven. He says, before Adam sinned and, and Satan fell, everything in this world was in perfect submission to God. 
But by that one act of sin, Adam introduced rebellion against God into the human race. God's plan of redemption, which existed before Adam sinned, was designed to bring everything back into that state of submission. And that's why Jesus came. To put down every trace of rebellion against God. And when that is completed and... And, and all rebellion has been removed and creation is restored to its original perfect condition where everything and everyone in the universe submits to God, at that point, the goal of redemption has been accomplished. Now, there'll be nothing left for Christ to do but to give the kingdom back to his Father who gave it to him in the first place because it ultimately belongs to the Father. And that's our last guarantee here. Number six is the consummation. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. And here we have to address the mystery of the the Trinity, right? That there are, there's one God with three members who are equal in nature, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but they all serve a unique role. And the Son, the second member of the Trinity, the Godhead, willingly subjected himself to the Father in order to accomplish the plan of redemption by humbly taking on humanity and by dying on the cross. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says that God is the head of Christ. In the same way that a man, a husband, is the head of a wife, right? He's in authority over her and she submits to him. In the same way, the father is in a position of authority over the son and the son submits to the father. And so he will subject himself to the father so that God may be all in all. And I think at this point, well, there will come a time when the Son will be viewed alongside the Father when the plan of redemption is complete by all those who've been redeemed, all those who are resurrected and living forever in the new heaven and the new earth will recognize the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as one glorious God reigning supreme over all things for all eternity. God will be all in all. I think this is what Jesus was thinking of when he prayed in John 17 in that upper room. He said, I glorified you, God, on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. All that to say, the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees the resurrection of all those who believe in him. Why? Because through his death, through his resurrection, he defeated Satan, he defeated sin, he defeated death. But for his victory over his enemies to be complete, the bodies of his people have to be raised from the dead. And if that were not the case, that would mean death was going to have the final word. And that that one of Christ's enemies would avoid subjection, and that is not possible. 
And thanks be to God, death will not have the final say. And we will be given the victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. I want to just take a moment to to talk with you as you have your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Just, Just let me challenge you a bit with the thought that unless Christ comes back first, all of us are going to die someday. But none of us will stay in the grave forever. We're going to be resurrected and given glorified bodies that will live forever in either heaven or hell. The question is, do you know where you're going to spend eternity when you die in that glorified body, either in heaven or in hell? There's no better day than today, the day we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ to make sure that you truly know him as your Lord and Savior. There's no other way, there's absolutely no other way to get to heaven except by repenting of your sin, placing your faith in the death and resurrection of Christ as the only way to be forgiven for your sin and committing your life to follow and obey him the rest of your life. You can do that right now by just praying a simple prayer to God, confessing your sin, confessing your faith in Christ as his sacrifice for your sin and devoting the rest of your life to obey Jesus as your Savior and Lord. God, I pray for those who are here today who have yet to be born again, who have yet to repent of their sin and trust Christ, that you would grant them grace and mercy, grant them repentance and faith this morning. It's a work that only you can accomplish, but we know that you use your word, your spirit uses your word to accomplish that purpose, and so as the word's been preached, we're confident that you will accomplish your work, it will not return void. And Lord, we thank you for for raising Jesus from the dead, which guarantees that you will raise us from the dead as well. And I pray that you would help us to live in light of the hope that this brings, not just for our future, not just for our eternity, but for right now. For right now. Lord, that as we deal with all the the issues of our lives the things that tend to overwhelm us and discourage us and distract us. Lord, that we would keep in view at all times um, our future resurrection and our eternal home in heaven with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.